optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now would have seen an appropriate time. What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Me Undies. Me Undies makes the softest undies known to man. That's what the copy says, and they are soft. They're really soft. Whether you like crazy prints or opt for classic black, Me Undies gives you the freedom to express yourself comfortably. I wonder what expressing yourself, of course, within legal bounds, means in this case, but I do like to express myself. I'm wearing some tie-dye Me Undies right now as I record this. In the room next to me, I've got some pizza and video game prints. Those are not on the same pair of underwear, but two separate ones. And I'll be packing for a trip and I have a nice stack of MeUndies going with me. Why? Because they're comfortable. Very, very comfortable. MeUndies has plenty of options for those looking to up their undie game. You can join the monthly membership. You can do build a pack that is building a three, six, or 10 pack of your favorite undies or socks and saving up to 30%. You can select a matching pair to match with your better half or just pick out one pair that strikes your fancy. And there are some pretty ridiculous ones that I specialize in personally. MeUndies are made with soft, sustainable fabric and available in sizes from extra small to 4XL. Fun new prints drop every Tuesday and members get access to exclusive prints every month. MeUndies has a great offer for listeners of this podcast. For any first-time purchase, you get 15% off and free shipping. They also give you a 100% satisfaction guarantee. And I like to be satisfied with my underwear. To get your 15% off your first order, free shipping, and a 100% satisfaction guarantee, go to MeUndies.com slash Tim. That's MeUndies.com slash Tim. This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs. Hiring can be hard, really hard, and it can also be super, super expensive and painful if you get it wrong. I certainly have had that experience firsthand multiple times, and I am not eager to repeat it, so I try to do as much vetting as possible on the front end. And today, with more qualified candidates than ever, you need a solution, you need a platform that helps you to find the right people for your business. LinkedIn Jobs does exactly that. More than 600 million users visit LinkedIn to learn, make connections, grow as professionals, and more than ever, discover new job opportunities. In fact, overall, LinkedIn members add 15 new skills to their profiles and apply to 35 job posts every two seconds. That's a crazy stat. LinkedIn does the legwork to match you to your most qualified candidates so that you can focus on the hiring process, getting the person into your company who will transform your business. They make sure your job post gets in front of the people with the right hard skills and soft skills to meet your requirements. They've made it as easy as possible. So check it out. To get $50 off of your first job post, go to linkedin.com slash Tim. Again, that's linkedin.com slash Tim to get $50 off of your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. But check it out, linkedin.com slash Tim. Well, hello, boys and girls. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where it is my job each and every episode to interview world-class performers or people who are exceptionally good at what they do, domain experts 
who can speak to the subtleties of a given subject, industry, or skill. And my guest today covers a lot of bases. His name is Tristan Harris, at Tristan Harris, T-R-I-S-T-A-N-H-A-R-R-I-S on Twitter. Rolling Stone has named him one of the 25 people shaping the world. Tristan was featured in Fortune's 2018 40 Under 40 list for his work on reforming technology. And The Atlantic has called him the closest thing Silicon Valley has to a conscience. (laughs) Formerly design ethicist at Google, he is a world-renowned expert on how technology steers our decisions. Tristan has spent nearly his entire life studying subtle psychological forces from early beginnings as a childhood magician. We talk quite a bit about this and also his study of pickpocketing and other (laughs) fascinating domains that I'm very, very interested in to working with the Stanford Persuasive Technology Lab and to his role as CEO of Apture, which was acquired by Google. Tristan has briefed heads of state, technology company CEOs, and members of US Congress about the attention economy, and he's been featured in media worldwide, including 60 Minutes, PBS NewsHour, and many more. He is the co-founder of the Center for Humane Technology, which can be found at humanetech.com. Please enjoy, without further ado, my wide-ranging conversation with Tristan Harris. Tristan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Tim. I am thrilled to finally have you on the line to have a wide-ranging conversation because we have many mutual friends and uh, many of my listeners have requested you on the show. And I thought that perhaps a, a, a good place to start would be beautiful Bali, Bali, Indonesia. <laughs> so I have in my notes here a bullet that references a retreat in Bali, that's in Indonesia, for folks who are curious about Bali, on hypnosis, pitpocketing, and magic. Uh, so let's let's dig into that. Why go, why go to such a thing? And what did you learn? And did you accidentally sign any powers of attorney or walk out with <laughs> empty pockets? It was actually one of the best life choices that I think I've ever made. Um, you know, I was... As a magician, I, sorry, as a kid, I was a magician early on and got interested in reading, just siphoned up all of this information from books and things like that. But then I, it wasn't really a, a thing that was going active in my life as an adult. But then about, I don't know, sometime in 2016, I saw this, uh, I was part of this newsletter, by, uh, I think his name is James Brown. He's a hypnotist based in the UK. And he said he was going to run a uh, workshop on hypnosis, pickpocketing, and magic in Bali. And I just thought, this is too good to pass up. It was about the one week of vacation I had in the year. And ended up going out there, and it was something like me and eight or nine magicians. Uh, I was probably the most amateur. And it was so much fun, because every night, you just have these magicians going out on the town. Like, we go to a a bar somewhere in, in Bali, and they would just clean up, not clean up in the sense of their money in their wallets, but in the sense of just having fun with people. And you would just watch these guys, you know, play with people's attention in ways that, you know, they didn't know what they were up against. And uh, it, it wasn't pickpocketing in an adversarial sense, like, let me get all your money. It was done in the... In the, in the Putting money into pockets. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it was uh, done in the, in the guise of, hey, I'm a magician. This is what I do. Um, but, you know, if you want to have some fun. And, but it's, it's just really fascinating, especially pickpocketing. I don't know if you know Apollo Robbins. 
I don't, but I'm definitely going to look this person up to learn more. He, he, he's also one of the sort of world's most famous pickpockets. He's a, he's a Ted. He actually helped me with my Ted talk, uh, when I was there and, uh, you know, he's just has, he actually worked and collaborated with a bunch of neuroscientists on essentially the limits of attention and stuff that he had picked up just by doing it, but then is later now being confirmed by, by neuroscience. And that's what I find fascinating about magic and pickpocketing is they were kind of the first applied psychologists. I mean, they've been doing this for hundreds of years, right? And I, I just love that, you know, our science is catching up to what the practitioners have known how to do for, for a long time. And uh, I, I'd love for you to perhaps talk to some of the techniques or principles behind good magic or pitpocketing. And I'm sure there aren't. Uh, we'll have a chance to explore parallels in other places. But for instance, uh, speaking from my own personal experience, I, about a month ago, had a chance to go to the Magic Castle in Los Angeles mm -hmm. for the first time. And the recommendation from the member who brought us in was to go to the close-up room, the close-up Magic right. Room. And it's seats somewhere between 12 and 20 people. It's a very small room. And there's a table right in front of you. It was about five feet from me. And after the performance that we saw, which was, which was truly staggering. I mean, it was just world-class in terms of sleight of hand. A uh, number of friends who are with me, one, a very high-end musician, the other, a very successful entrepreneur, and then uh, a number of other folks walked out and said, I have to question everything in my reality <laughs> <laughs> because of what could be done right in front of you. I mean, literally right in front of you. Uh, right. Are there any particular sort of techniques or principles that stand out for you uh, in the realm of of magic, pitpocketing, hypnosis, or or other, in terms of the, these practitioner arts, I mean the the punchline is it's it's really about the limits of attention in in all of the cases, right? I mean, I I think the other thing you're also getting at is you know you had some pretty successful people by your side. It sounds like I mean business people, entrepreneurs. The thing about magic that I always found most interesting is that it has nothing to do with the level, like you, your level of being inoculated from the effect has nothing to do with your intelligence. Right. Right. It's like, which is so fascinating, right? Because you, you could have the most successful business person or, you know, off the charts prodigy in mathematics or something like that. But it has nothing to do with the extent to which they can be fooled in a close up, um, you know, experience or pickpocketing. And that they are living in separate different domains, that those are two different areas of skill or inoculation, I found fascinating. Because I, I think it says so much about what magic is doing. It's not about intelligence. It's about something more subtle and about the weaknesses or the limits or the blind spots or the biases that we're all trapped inside of. You know, I always say it's like we're trapped in a mind-body meat suit that has a set of you know, bindings and and bendings to to how we see the world that you don't know that you're living inside of that corrective tissue that happens to bend attention in that way. I mean, so misdirection is the core principle. You know, you look over here and you think you're looking. You know, you think you're going to catch the magician doing it because you're looking where you would think that he doesn't want you to look, but he's probably by that point already 
you know, four steps ahead of you. So right. like by the time you're looking at the place, oh, the other hand, it must be in the other hand, but like that you're behind. It happened three steps ago. And usually there's a setup. So sometimes the the actual trick has happened, you know, at the very beginning. And then there's there's layers upon layers that are being built. And the magician's usually working two or three steps ahead. I wish I could give more, you know, concrete examples, but I, you know, the magician's code is you don't you don't give this stuff up to to the public. <laughs> the, the funny thing about magic, of course, is it's all it actually is all public. You just have to buy a book. <laughs> but it turns out people don't read books, and so it remains a secret. Um, but you know, I, I think that in pickpocketing, what was fascinating is it's you know people think, oh, do you just you, know, you grab it when I'm not looking? And it's not like that at all. I mean, as a pickpocket, the person will stand right up next to you. They'll look at you. They'll talk to you. You're just having a conversation. They will, with you, they will look down at your left pocket and they'll tap it and they'll say, oh, so what's what's in that pocket over there? And then you'll pull out, you know, keys and a wallet and you'll look at it and say, oh, okay, that's interesting. What's in that wallet? And they'll, you know, you're, you're right there with them as they're doing this. And then it's in this other moment where they say, well, look at what's happening in the other pocket. And they'll turn around and walk around you. And there's all this mischief that starts to happen in those moments in between. But what's interesting about pickpocketing is the way people on the outside, the public tends to think about it is they just kind of grab it when you're not looking. But what's fascinating is it actually happens right underneath your nose. So <laughs> I, I just, I love it. It's, it's so amazing to watch these guys work. Now you uh, were very recently, it's testifying the right verb here or uh, presenting. Yeah. What is, what, yeah. maybe you I was could... the, the lead witness in a, in a Senate hearing on persuasive technology. And if if I'm remembering correctly, and feel free to to fact check this, but uh, you you talked about the magicians choose a pick pick a card, any card, uh, or or alluded to that might have been in your TED talk. It was in it was in one of the two, uh, but and we'll, we'll come back to the uh, to to Washington D.C. But the, the when you mentioned that it it and I'm just try try to tie two things together here. It made me think of the, you know, if you control the menu, you control the choices, which is yeah. one of the hijacks you talk about. Can you, can you describe this? Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, well, I mean, we tend to live in, you know, we're in the United States and we tend to live in a libertarian culture that's all about celebrating and protecting the freedom to make our own choices. But at a very, very, very deep level, um, we don't. We're not also taught to question who controlled the menu of choices that we are picking from. Um, this also occurs, I think, at a deep, like spiritual or identity level. You know, you can make any choice you want, but you don't see the invisible constraints on how you are seeing the world in such a way that, you know, you're only picking from the five habitual things that your mind sh- that shows up in your mind on a daily basis. But in magic, I mean, the principle is just. And it's actually more nuanced than this. I mean, it's funny, Darren Brown, the famous mentalist, I was emailing with him the other day, and he was saying, I, I could probably teach you some some things to update your your view that this is the most important principle in magic. But you know, if you control the 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 menu and the order of options as they're presented and the emphasis as they're presented, um, you you can I mean, I wish I could do a demo here, but I'm not a good enough magician to do it live. Um, you know, you can make it seem as if someone has whittled down from the entire deck of cards down to one, from 52 cards down to one. And it seems as if they've made their own free choice along the way in like four distinct choice, you know, moments. But in fact, you know exactly what card you wanted them to get to all along. And, you know, the, the kind of questions you can ask people um, shape the outcome, the kinds of sequencing of the questions, the meaning making it. 
it's hard to do this without actually giving people the the you know the whole techniques, but I, I think this is something that is really important to understand, whether it's in the way that technology presents menus to us or the way that society or culture do. You know, any any way you choose, you're still choosing within a menu that has other people's interests behind it. You you mentioned invisible constraints. So the sort of the the assumptions that we may not be aware that we're making or the box that we've created for ourselves in some fashion or adopted from our environment or our parents or, or other places. Are there any any particular sort of tools or mental models or or anything at all that you use to try to identify the invisible constraints in your life? Well, yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I mean, fundamentally, I feel like the process of waking up or awakening is is to try to see assumptions that we're making um, or, you know, guiding principles in our choices that, you know, are, are we even asking the right questions? Like, so let's say right after this interview, you know, you get outside and you could go in any direction. Like, what is the, just think about that, that moment. So uh, I'll leave this, this podcast studio and you'll leave your, your house. And, and then what comes up into your mind about where to go? Right. I mean, it's a, usually a set of habits. Maybe it's like, oh, what do I need to do? Let me refer to my to-do list. What is it? You know, which cafe do I want to go to for an iced coffee to run away from that anxiety that I was feeling because I don't know what to do with myself? There's this limited. We're kind of creatures of habits, right? And so, especially when we're inside of embedded environments that we've been in for long periods of time, we tend to play out the same patterns over and over again. This is where the, you know, this is. Uh, both a kind of a, a new age throwaway statement and also uh, a real one, which is, you know, wherever you are, what is it called? What is it called again? I think it's wherever you go, there you are. Yes. Some, something like that. The John something Kabat-Zinn like that. book title. John Kabat-Zinn. Yeah. yeah, exactly. John is also a friend. And, and, you know, it's the point is that we repeat our same mental habits everywhere we go. So, you know, in in so many ways that are often invisible to us, we don't notice the consistency of a kind of a, a structure to the way our minds happen to process information or the way that we think about what to do with our time or the way that we value things or we sort things. All those processes that are sitting inside of us, you know, happening all the time are often invisible and not available for introspection. Um, and they basically run our whole life, um, which is why they say like, oh, maybe I'll go on a meditation retreat or maybe I'll go find myself in Bali. But then, you know, you find that, you know, and as I know from your meditation experience with, uh, you know, the monkey mind, it's like, we just have these recurring processes that follow us everywhere. And I think if you can't see them, uh, then they run your life. And then we're kind of like automatons. We're robots that are living according to the previous set of constraints. And the extent to which we have choice is the extent to which we see those patterns. Um, and as far as techniques to to see them, I mean, I think that's tricky. I don't. Have you ever done the work of uh, Byron Katie? I have. Uh, I, I, I find the... A number of her one sheets, uh, sort of these one page uh, worksheet pr- uh, prompts to be uh, very helpful. Uh, it takes a yeah. little getting used to. It can seem very strange uh, and nonsensical at first, but uh, I think if you're willing to force yourself to do the thought exercise <laughs> right. of contorting um, the the beliefs, uh, you know, these statements that you take is true. It's, it's super valuable. Could you, could you describe, uh, if, if, process, if, if, yeah. Yeah, if you've done it, how, how you've done it? It sounds super abstract for those people who haven't seen it, but I mean, it, she's basically just come up with this set of four questions you can ask of any moment in your life that causes stress 
because usually what's happening is you're you are creating that stress for your own mind and you just can't see it yet so um, I, I, I kind of think about it to link it to the magic metaphor that our brains are living inside of this 24 seven magic trick, which is that whatever thought pops into our mind, we believe it. We don't not believe it. We just, <laughs> right. we automatically step into it and we see the world through that thought, through the assumptions of that thought. And essentially what, what her four questions do is they let you see the exact opposite of that belief which then question, makes you not take your beliefs and your thoughts so seriously. And it's a great parody with, with meditation, but essentially something like, um, I don't know, for example, you're driving and there you are, and then some guy in a red Corvette like cuts you off and you're like, I don't know, something like that guy is an asshole or something like that. Right. And you are convinced of it. Every bone in your body, every bit of your nervous system just you know for sure this guy is impatient, he's, you know, inconsiderate. Uh, all, all of these thoughts just rush into your mind and you have utter certainty about your experience and who this other person is, right? Um, let alone the fact you don't know if this person is rushing to go get their wife who's at the hospital because something's wrong. I mean, you don't know, right? So the four questions are, okay, that person, you know, that guy is inconsiderate. The first question is, is that true? That guy is inconsiderate. Mm -hmm. And you have to like pause and sit there. You know, there you are in the car looking at this person and say, that guy's inconsiderate. Is that true? Okay. Second question is usually to reinforce the, and loosen up maybe the beliefs a bit, which is, can you be absolutely sure that it's true that that guy is inconsiderate? And you realize, no, I, I can't. In fact, I just thought that the moment that he, you know, stepped, you know, ran in front of me. Okay, so then you get to the third question, which is, okay, what happens? Uh, what do I, what, how do I react? What images come to mind? How do I feel? How do I relate to the world? How do I relate to him when I believe the thought that guy is inconsiderate? What, what, what happens? And the, and the answer would be something like, I see him as, you know, naive. I see him as thoughtless. I see my, you know, I, I don't care about him. I, I want him to be, you know, <laughs> removed off the face of the earth. I, I want that car out of my way. I get angry. My, my body, I feel, you know, all these things, right? The entire, you're trying to basically list the ecology of just what that one belief in that one moment that that guy is inconsiderate does to your whole nervous system. So it's like a full body scan, kind of full belief scan of what that does. And you sort of see, oh my God, just by believing that one thought, it's totally transformed my entire experience in that moment with reality. I am now seeing reality in a totally different way. And usually in a more distorted, disconnected, not centered, not calm, not, not connected way. And then the fourth question is, once you realize the kind of absurdity of that ecology of beliefs, um, is uh, who would I be in that moment without the thought that mm -hmm. that guy is inconsiderate? And so there he is, he crosses, you know, he, he cuts over right in front of me, but without the thought, that guy is inconsiderate. Maybe it's something like I have curiosity about what happened, why did he do that? Um, you know, whatever, you, you, you get that ecology. And then the, the last step is to list the opposites of the belief. So um, instead of that guy is inconsiderate, one opposite is uh, that guy is very considerate or he is considerate. And you, you try to find evidence. Is there any way in which that could be true? And, you know, in that moment prior to doing this process, you were convinced that this guy just was absolutely inconsiderate. But as you, after you've done those four questions, you think, is there any evidence for him being considerate? Well, what if he's on the way to the hospital to meet, you know, 
his wife who just who just you know got is is, is in, in labor or something from being pregnant uh and, and you realize that he could be the most considerate person um uh, you know in that way or another opposite to he's inconsiderate could be i am inconsiderate <laughs> and the evidence there would be that i'm inconsiderate of the fact that i don't know the ecology of this other person's life and i rapidly jump to conclusions so what this process does and i, I mean i feel like didn't mean to go through it for so long, but it, it it shows you something fundamental about the ways that our mind trap us in, you know, almost like a permanent fixed set of glasses that temporarily occupy the way that we see the world and make meaning. And when you see that, you just stop taking your thoughts and your beliefs quite so seriously. And you realize that even in those moments when you're stressed and you're convinced it's because the world really is, you know, doing that thing that pisses you off. It, it lets you see maybe I'm actually doing this for myself. And that also gains and increases responsibility because that means that now we're responsible for our own experience as opposed to, you know, the world is constantly terrorizing us with situations. Thank you very much for that uh, overview. That was, go on so that, long. <laughs> that, was, no, that was really good. That was really good. I, I spent uh, two days with Byron Katie in a small group. And for people who are listening, uh, I, I will confess something that, someone listening might also experience, which is when I was first given this exercise and did it uh, as related to a few different situations, I had a lot of resistance. <laughs> Just the, yeah, uh, it, I did too. It, yeah, it stuck. It struck me as this sort of semantic tail chasing or highly abstract. And when you dig into it, if you give it a chance as, as a thought exercise, uh, it's it's it can be incredibly valuable. I mean, some of the transformations that I witnessed in the room with people who had long-standing beliefs about, say, a family member, which were which were completely crippling, like had paralyzed a family situation, uh, was was really remarkable. And you you mentioned the 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 three questions you know is it true can you absolutely know it's true how do you react what happens when you believe that thought and who would you be without that thought um, a, a couple of a couple of points that were really valuable to me or questions to ask so sort of as, as a subsection under how do you react what happens when you believe that thought one of the subsets of that that uh, Byron uh, I also, uh, uh, Byron Katie has on the website, it's just the work.com. And you can find all this stuff for free is, uh, you know, do any obsessions or addictions begin to appear when you believe that thought? I think this yeah, is it's a really, really, good one, yeah. really good one and really important. You mentioned leading into this, you know, do you go to the coffee shop to drink a coffee because you're overwhelmed or worried about not knowing what to do? Right. And right. then that likely triggers a whole new set of physical sensations, which, trigger a whole set of sort of emotional and uh, thought responses, which you might blame on the circumstances of two hours before. But in fact, you just took down 200 milligrams of caffeine in four minutes, right? So it's, yeah. it's like fractal levels of running away from anxiety. You know, it's yeah. like running away from anxiety creates an experience that that's an addiction that then creates more anxiety that we then run away from. And we spend our whole day clicking between Facebook and email, Facebook and email. And then you're like, where did my day go? Exactly. And the, uh, the, the, the last thing for now that I'd, I'd like to say about this, because I'm really glad you brought it up, uh, is that the, the portion of creating the opposites is where I had the most resistance. And mm. 
the, for instance, uh, that person is very considerate or I am inconsiderate and so on. And there are a whole bunch of different ways that you can, you can turn these sentences around. Uh, the, the only way I could really get through the exercise was to say, if I had a gun against my head and had to come <laughs> up with three hypothetical cases where this could be true, whatever the, the permutation is, what would they be? And, um, it's really powerful. Uh, and, yeah. and, and uh, I don't want to belabor the point, but uh, I do encourage everybody to check it out and, and try it out. I'm, I'm really glad you brought it up. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I totally appreciate what you're saying, not to dwell so much on, on her work, even though it actually has been impactful for, I think probably other things we may talk about is you just, you just realize the way that the mind so quickly steps into some new belief with, with utter certainty you know, and, and just to your point, like, you know, when you find these opposites, like, well, maybe I'm not considerate. Maybe that person is so considerate. It's like, no, sometimes that guy just is inconsiderate. Like, he actually just wasn't looking, and he's not trying to rush to save his wife, and, you know, whatever else, right? I mean, there's definitely an argument you could make that he was being inconsiderate. And it's not meant to deny um, facts about reality, about someone else's, you know, objective uh, state. But, I think what it does overall is makes you realize that we live in utter certainty about a world that's highly uncertain and that whenever stress comes about through that process, um, we might be able to, you know, downregulate a lot of that stress by just not taking our thoughts and beliefs quite so seriously. I mean, it's an amazing tool. Uh, and, I, you know, the, it relates to technology in a way because I think technology is this sort of false belief factory. Like, it just generates, you know, all of these false beliefs just moment by moment by moment by moment. And, I mean, the premise of, of her work and doing this process is so that you don't identify with your thoughts. I mean, the fourth question she asks, which is, who would you be without the thought? It's not what would happen instead if you didn't think he's inconsiderate. It's who would you be? So it's an identity level question. And this actually is really important because when you're doing belief transformation work, when you do identity level work, it's much more persuasive. I mean, if you if we want to link this to the stuff I know about Russia's influence campaign in the 2016 elections, I mean, a lot of it was identity level work. Like, we are African-Americans and Hillary doesn't care about us. That was the message that Russia went after. Um, it's because identity level propaganda and you know identity politics, it's, it's the deepest level of psychological influence work. Now, in the Byron Katie sense, she's doing it to try to empower people to overcome uh, the ways that they their brain lies to them and deceives them. In the other sense, it can be used, obviously, to manipulate people. But, you know, in studying, I don't know, have you done neurolinguistic programming? You know, I first read, uh, I have not done any training, at least not directly, but beginning in high school, uh, which is, I think, when Tony Robbins really put NLP on the main stage in some respects, right. uh, became fascinated by the prospect or the implications as described by Tony Robbins in his first book of NLP. But c could you describe that for people who don't know what it is? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not an expert, but I have taken some some workshops in it. I mean, neurolinguistic programming is essentially a study of how language and uh, thought and meaning are, you know, basically each of us have a map in our own brain of how we see reality. We're not actually directly in touch with the reality in front of us. We're living through this mediated map that, um, you know, and based on word choices we use, uh, it shapes the reality that we that we have. Um, it's used in hypnosis. It's actually the basis for Ericksonian hypnosis and, uh, you know, how you, what kind of language choices to make and how you can 
deepen people's experience or alleviate people's experience. Like a simple example, just to make it concrete, is something like, you know, think of a person that you love and see their see their face in your in your mind's eye, and then turn up the colors. So like, just make the colors more vivid. Do you feel more? of the love or do you feel less of the love when you turn up the colors how about if you bring the image even closer so bring it up way close right in front of you and turn up the colors you know and then just playing with just noticing that even as you you do this you, you get different kinds of feelings and experiences versus for example if you turn down the colors you make it grayscale what if you make it small move it very far away these are all ways of playing with you know uh human cognition and experience um and uh you know, anyway, when you do this kind of work, there's uh, it's used in counseling, psychological counseling as well. And when you when you work with people on a on a counseling level, you, if you can do identity level transformation work, where, for example, if if you ask someone the phrase, "Are you an athlete?" You know, I mean, if I ask you, are, would you say you're an athlete? Uh, when I'm not eating uh, donuts and sitting all day, I would like to think of myself as an athlete. I used to be an athlete. Would be my real answer. I'd say I used to be an athlete. So, so is that like when you sort of query your nervous system, if you say the phrase like, I, I, am an, I used to be an athlete, does that feel like the most accurate thing for you? It does. Yeah. Because I think athlete, competitive athlete. So that's, right. that's I would say I used to be an athlete. I see. Right. So there you go. So that's your map, right? It's like athlete for you means competitive athlete in some kind of professional sense. Which is interesting. I mean, a lot of people would probably answer that question, no, right? Mm -hmm. And yet a lot of people, I mean, I might answer that question, no. But, you know, do you exercise? You know, do you do you go to the gym? Do you... You know, I do uh, boxing and some kickboxing stuff for fun, um, mm -hmm. just fitness classes. And, you know, I wouldn't put myself in the category of athlete, but just notice that that's just, you know, whether I fall on the side of, side of yes or no to that question has a really big implication for how I see myself, right? Definitely. And, and it's totally arbitrary whether or not I call myself as part of the category of I am an athlete versus I'm not. And what would make me an athlete? Like, what are the criteria? Well, there we go. Now I'm inspecting the map inside my brain that I've, I've invisibly constructed some set of rules about when you officially qualify for being an athlete and when you don't. And it's all artificial. It's all arbitrary. It's just coming from our own mind, happening to organize these rules and, and, and obligations, which are self-constructed. And it's through the NLP type stuff or Byron Katie stuff that you can actually play with all this. And you realize that you're living in this fractal kind of hall of mirrors in your mind that um, you know, makes us think or believe all these things that are just kind of distortions self-constructed out of invisible parts of our brain. And waking up is the process by which we can, uh, you know, shatter some of the glasses and, and see more clearly. Yeah. And waking up, uh, I mean, if, if feel free to, to, to offer a counterpoint, it seems to me that waking up here is at least in part, simply becoming aware of your habitual processes, right? And it's, yeah. it's kind of like, stepping out of the movie itself in which you're the lead actor or actress and stepping back into the audience and watching, becoming the observer of your own behavior. And uh, you know, what you were saying earlier about thoughts and beliefs and how, uh, how much conviction we can have about yes. a snap judgment um, totally. reminds me of something that uh, BJ Miller, who's a doctor, and hospice care physician who's been on the podcast, who's helped something like a thousand people to die. Mm. Uh, his answer to the question I often ask, which is what would you put on a billboard is uh, he actually got from a, a bumper sticker. So I don't know the original attribution, but it's don't believe everything that you think, <laughs> right? <laughs> which right, I liked exactly. a lot. And the uh, 
I think about language a lot uh, because I mean, when we're talking about language, I mean, to some extent, we're talking about labels. And if we're talking about labels, we're talking about sort of conceptual overlays that we're putting on top of our sensory input, right? So it's really yep. like how you're constructing reality. And when you look at something, I, we, we don't have to go into it in depth right now, but uh, if people search for the 21-day the no complaint experiment, there's a, hmm. I want to say a pastor, it might be a reverend, Will Bowen, might be Bowen, B-O-W-E-N, who began doing an experiment with his congregation uh, in which they would wear a rubber band or a wristband that was elastic, and they would they attempted to go 21 days without complaining. And there are parameters, which were mostly language-based, for what constituted a complaint. Mm -hmm. And if you complained, you had to switch your wrists and start your 21-day clock over again. And huh. the, uh, the, the effects on people who completed the 21 days, or even made it halfway uh, on quality of life, on their thinking and the lens through which they looked at reality, right. was so profound uh, and if, if you really look at the nitty gritty of it, it's, it's training and awareness of the, the statements in your mind and the statements exactly. that you use, just like, uh, Byron Katie's the work in a sense. Exactly. I mean, in, in essence, I mean, it's like, this is why not, not, I don't want to switch in the technology stuff, at least not yet, but the, you know, when you say the attention economy is beneath all other economies, like the psychology, like the if you had a you know an amplifier or a voice out like an output for all of the thoughts running through our heads i mean this this is what constitutes our inner lives this is the this is the soundtrack this is the things that we're repeating invisibly we don't even notice that we're repeating it because it's almost it doesn't have audio but immediately i mean i've done i know you have uh, done lots of meditation and on a 7 day meditation retreat i once did that's what i was most surprised by was just how quickly these next thoughts would come up and that how quickly I was tempted to believe them. And, you know, the whole, like, there, you know, wherever you go, there you are. Like, the same patterns of thoughts would come up. Like, the same self-doubt or the same self-criticism. Um, you know, I don't want this to sound uh, dull for listeners because I know that when people describe these things from a distance, it doesn't sound as interesting as profound. But, you know, to your point about language, you're just making me think. I remember where I first encountered your work, Tim, which was um, – uh, or at least it was one of the early recommendations you made, I think, in 4-Hour Workweek uh, about – uh, the 22 immutable laws of marketing. Yes. Mm -hmm. And which is also was a profound book for, for me. Uh, and you know, the example of marketing is all about using language to manipulate perception and the fact that your mind organizes information in particular ways. And I remember one core thing in that book is just the way that our, our minds create kind of ladders of, you know, in competition, like invisible categories, like safety, you know, which is the number one safest car in the world for, you know, what's the most safe car in the world? And everyone says, Volvo. Great. What's the second safest car in the world? And you realize your mind draws a blank. It's because your mind doesn't even organize information past slot number one. Um, and it's all based on the slots. You know, what's the fastest car in the world? What's the safest car in the world? And, you know, I think it's the same thing in our own lives that invisibly, um, the way we construct, you know, am I an athlete or not? I mean, these are the, it's just this, again, this sort of structure of identity, of belief, of meaning that makes up and constitutes, you know, our well-being, what choices we make, whether we dare to take those risks, whether we dare to jump off a cliff, whether we look at the world's problems in the face. Uh, I think the, the psychology is everything. And it doesn't seem important if you haven't looked inside, <laughs> which yeah. is also fascinating that people can spend their whole lives not even, you know, 
looking looking in and, and, and hearing what the words that keep showing up in our brains are. Um, I didn't do my first meditation retreat, I think, until I was 32. Well, you beat me. <laughs> <laughs> when did you do yours? I did mine just a few years ago, so I was probably 39 or 40. Uh, and um, for those people who want a little uh, comedic relief, one of the terms that one of the uh, coordinators used, uh, I, I don't know if it was Jack Cornfield himself. He was there at Spirit Rock. It, it may have been one of the other teachers, but they, they joked about Vipassana vendettas where people in the room would become so preoccupied with like the person 10 feet away who's coughing too often or who's totally. like shuffling <laughs> too often or has like the noisy jacket with the zipper yeah. and, and it becomes this sort of obsessive focus, which happens all the time in daily life. It's, it's totally, just not as obvious. It's totally true. It's it's funny you mentioned this because, you know, when you're on a meditation retreat, you're in silence for days. And what I find fascinating is the way that for whatever reason, you just kind of, your mind locks onto people and you start making judgments about them. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. you think like that person over there, oh, they just think this or like look at the way that they you know serve themselves food quietly like they're just a slob or you know like whatever the thing that comes up is <laughs> and and then what's funny is like i don't know if you experienced this but in the last day of my meditation retreat obviously we had this little um we start finally talk to each other and you get to know who people are and you realize just how off base you were you know and and these invisible you know the, the how quickly our mind jumps to conclusions about people for whom we've literally we have never talked to it. We've never inspected the contents of their mind. We're just, we get obsessed with it. And it reminds me of another attention exercise I did at, at Burning Man once. It was really powerful, actually. Like if you're ever in a, in a group setting, this is a super meta mind kind of uh, podcast interview. So hopefully listeners don't find this too conceptual and abstract, but it's actually really fun stuff. I mean, our attention is so profoundly happening without us really realizing it. But this, this exercise that I did, you're in a room of people like 30 people, and you're walking around in silence, and then you kind of stand on the edge, and you're led by a facilitator to first look around the room. So there you are looking at all the 30 people, and you're looking around the room, and it says, they'll say, like, so first just look around the room and notice who you have noticed. Like, notice that there's certain people, certain faces that you've drawn, that draw a lot more of your attention than other people. Like, right? Like, in a room of 30 people, you would think, like, oh, yeah, we just, we pay attention to all 30. But actually, if you look closely, your mind is actually paying attention to a subset. For whatever reason, there's a subset of people who you find more interesting. Second question was, or second prompt was, look around the room and now notice the people that for whatever reason you don't like. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like, you don't even know why you don't like them. You just, or you're, you're just not interested to connect with them. Or you, you, you would not want to be with them or talk to them. Just notice that there's some people you've already selected that you don't want to talk to. Um, and isn't that interesting? Like, what about them has you feeling like, I don't even want to talk to them? And then the third prompt was, look around the room and notice all the people you didn't even notice. They're like the people in between, the hmm. faces who your mind completely skips over. And you don't even notice that you're doing that. And it's, it's a really profound exercise. There's a lot, there's some other steps to it, but it, it really shows you that, you know, your, your mind is living inside of this selection filter that is pre-selecting certain bits of information to reach your conscious awareness and then hiding lots of others and also polarizing you against other, you know, people or, or sources of information. And you don't even know why you're just living inside of that hammer that's wanting to treat everything like a nail, but you don't even know the direction of the hammer and that there are lots of nails. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I was, I was also, you know, as you're, as you're talking about this, 
these selection filters, right? And the 22 immutable laws of marketing, uh, you know, for people who want to look at the power of words through a different lens. Uh, and this, this came up for me, actually, I should say this person, uh, Frank Luntz uh, came up for me. Oh, I know him. He's, yeah. Uh, yeah. So he's come up for me in a few different scenarios. One, a friend of mine, very, 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 actually a mutual friend of ours, but I won't name him by, by name. Uh, certainly a very socially liberal guy uh, recommended, I think it's words that work. I think that's words. Words that work, yeah. It's, yep. it's not what they, what you said. It's what people hear is the title right, of the book. by Frank Luntz, and this, and he came up recently because I was watching uh, Vice, the movie about Dick Cheney, and mm. so Frank Luntz, for those people who don't know, uh, and I'm reading directly from Wikipedia here, is uh, he's, he's an American political consultant, pollster, and public opinion guru, best known for developing talking points and other messaging for various Republican causes. But and, and I'll skip a bunch of it just to give a few examples. He advocated use of vocabulary crafted to produce a desired effect, including use of the term death tax instead of estate tax and climate change instead of global warming. Those are really powerful uh, vocabulary reframes. Really, yeah. really powerful. If you think of the implication, the implications of, of, of those reframes. Um, totally. And uh, this, this is, I mean, we're, we're, we we can certainly chat about about Frank and, and the power of words, but the the sort of meta. So feel free to 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 jump in with with anything you'd like to say. But the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean I, it's it's I, I love you bringing this up. I mean I hope this again isn't too <laughs> um, meta, you know, trippy for 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 people listening. There's so much focus on language, but it it, it does shape everything. I mean, again, if people think climate change versus global warming, the whole point is well, climate's always changing. Right? There's nothing to worry about because it's always changing. It's a neutral statement. Um, it, another one that's like Frank is, uh, you know, he's often thought to be on the right. And there's this guy, George Lakoff, who's on the left, who wrote a book called Metaphors We Live By. Huh. And he's like an academic linguist um, who, you know, has, has talked about the power of grounding metaphors. So grounding metaphor is if you think about something like the nation as a family. So invisibly, when we think about the nation, it's structured, at least in English, uh, as part of the family. So we don't send our sons and daughters to war. We right. don't want those missiles in our backyard. Right. Um, you know, there's a third one too. I forgot. Um, shoot. Our founding fathers. Yeah. Our founding fathers, you know, said that is it, uh, there are our fathers really, <laughs> are they, are they really our fathers? So invisibly, you know, we have this baked into our language at a structural level that, that organizes, um, almost like a geometry of meaning about how we see the nation. Those are our sons and daughters. Those are our founding fathers. Those, this is our backyard, being our property, you know. Um, and it conjures up a whole bunch of assumptions about how we see the world that then structure, you know, entire political beliefs about whether to go to war and all this kind of stuff. And so, as you've said, it's like language is profoundly shaping not just like our own, you know, mental lives consequences and what you see on a meditation retreat, but, you know, world history um, and whether or not we tackle something like climate change or we go to war with Iraq. Um, mm -hmm. These are really, really big deals. And I, I think that we have to gain literacy for our minds. I mean, I actually think, I mean, this is kind of the essence of our work now is that, you know, fundamentally we're at this point where if we can't see our own psychological, you know, what's the words? I mean, if we can't see the way our minds are structuring information and we are just simply, as you said before, 
you know, like run by them, like they're the automatic process that runs ahead of our choices, then it's already done. Like it's already checkmate because we're already, uh, uh, you know, being led by things that don't produce, um, you know, choice making that averts the kind of catastrophes that I think that we, we all want to avert. Um, and I, I think this is, you know, my, my co-founder of the Center for Human Technology, Aza Raskin, says the way to win the final war is to make peace with ourselves, that this is the architecture, like this is how we work. And the only way we're going to, you know, either get over ourselves and, you know, take those risks to, to make the choices we want to make in our own lives is by understanding ourselves better. And the only way we're going to solve civilization's problems is by, you know, uh, gaining an understanding for the things that would stand in our way. Um, mm-hmm. I agree. And we're going to, we are going to segue to technology very, very briefly. I I want to, again, encourage people to, as a way to become more familiar with the words that you are using and the language you're using, which is basically this, you could think of it as the software that you're running in in a sense, which is really important. Like you might want to inspect that code. Uh, Yeah. is to take a look at Byron Katie's the work and uh, the the twenty one day no complaint experiment is also a great way by focusing on one particular category of language to become meta aware more broadly of the what the voice in your head is actually telling you <laughs> all day long yeah. and um, technology. Let's talk about uh, how you first came to know B J Fogg. Uh, maybe this maybe this is a, a place to start, and then we can we can leapfrog all over the place from there. Who is BJ Fogg? Sure, and and do you know BJ by the way? Just curious. I do. I haven't uh, spent time with him in years, but there was a period yeah. of time when I was living in uh, Mountain View that uh, that we had a chance to spend a, a decent amount of time together, and uh, we we have spent some time together, and we just have actually recently started emailing again. Oh, cool. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, so BJ. Um, is a psychology professor at Stanford, and he ran something, um, I think continues to run something called the Stanford Persuasive Technology Lab um, that basically applies everything we know about the psychology of persuasion to technology. And basically, you're asking the question in the lab, how can technology persuade people's attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors? Uh, And, you know, a lot of alumni have come out of this lab. I mean, I was um, project partners with uh, the co-founder of Instagram, Mike Krieger, uh, you know, a lot of people went on to work at LinkedIn and Facebook and the early social media companies because, you know, this was like the perfect set of tools to apply to the way that we design technology. But in, in, in the lab, you know, you study everything from clicker training for dogs, you know, like how do you know what how to train a dog to do the behaviors you want and not the ones you don't want? Um, we read a book called Don't Shoot the Dog by Karen Pryor. Amazing book. Um, Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Oh, you know this one? Oh, yes, I do. Yeah. Yeah. I do. It's, it's, yeah. I recommend to everyone. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, it's like I programmed myself to to enjoy boxing and kickboxing because I just get a smoothie right afterwards. It's sort of Pavlovian conditioning, uh, click a clicker train in the form of a smoothie. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's it, anyway, you learn that you learn social psychological dynamics. Robert Cialdini. I mean, all, a lot of the marketing stuff that you have already pointed out to to many of your listeners, I'm sure. But you know, it's really just a study again of the code. This is like delving into the code of the human mind, and this is what we find persuasive. And uh, I, you know, this is in 2006, so it's the year before the iPhone. So the iPhone hasn't hadn't even come out yet. And we had a, a class on pers- you know persuasion through video and through mobile apps. And the founder of Instagram and I, before he had anything close to the idea for Instagram, we uh, worked on 
you know, applying these principles for good. That's the thing people get wrong about the lab. They think it was this sort of diabolical training ground, <laughs> evil psychological <laughs> manipulation tech leaders or something like that. And it wasn't that way at all. It was actually a really powerful, you know, three hours once a week uh, deep dive into this this world and, and asking the question, how would you use it for good? So the, the founder of Instagram and I worked on this thing called Send the Sunshine, where, you know, we thought, well, what if, what if we could persuade people in a way that alleviated depression, but using our social psychology? And so, and this is, again, before the iPhone. So imagine the kind of thoughts you'd had to be thinking back then. But, you know, the idea was, imagine there's some server that knows that there's two friends who are friends and they have both their phone numbers. And it tracks the zip code of one phone number and realizes that you've been in a place, you know, with bad weather for six days in a row. And because we know from seasonal affective depression disorder, uh, that's a big deal. Um, just having bad weather for a while can kind of put someone down. And so what if upon hitting that that condition, it then sends a text message through something like a Twilio to your, you know, this is before Twilio too, uh, and sends it to your friend Mike and says, hey, would you would you take a photo of the sunshine and send it to your friend Tristan, who's had bad bad weather? And, you know, the idea is we'd just be sending each other the sunshine. And this was a really nice idea behind alleviating alleviating depression. There's all sorts of positive applications like that we thought of around helping people go to the gym and meet their goals. And BJ has this nice model for um, uh, behavior equals MAT, B equals MAT, which is uh, behavior equals motivation times ability times trigger. So uh, someone, whether or not someone does a desired behavior like going to the gym involves them being first motivated, uh, then having the ability, like do they have you know, if they're trying to go to a boxing class, do they have, uh, you know, a pair of boxing gloves and, uh, you know, the clothes and the, and the shoes? Or do they, are they staying with a friend where they don't have those things? So they have to have the second ability. And then the third is, is there a trigger? Is there like an opportunity? Is there a moment? Is there a snap the fingers? Is there a ding on your smartphone? Is there a reason why right now you should consider doing that behavior? And if you have all three of those things aligned, then people will do it. So, you know, we learn all these kinds of things, but, um, you know, this also became relevant in the story about Cambridge Analytica because I remember um, back in that, in that class, there was one student group that actually had done, there was this one segment in the class on the future of persuasive technology and ethical persuasive technology. And there was one group that came up with the idea, well, what if in the future you had a profile on every single person on earth? And the profile was specifically, what does their mind respond to? that is persuasive. Like what, how is their mind uniquely, you know, what's their map and what's their, what are their set of psychological biases? Like if, if you said, well, Harvard really, you know, said the Harvard school of medicine said that this thing is true, you know, that would be persuasive for them because appeals to authority work with them. Or if for you, Tim, I said, Hey, you know, Eric Weinstein said X, Y, and Z, you know, and we both know Eric <laughs> Weinstein. He's a really smart guy. Yep. Uh, you know, each of us are responsive to different stimuli. And what if in the future you had this map of what is perfectly persuasive to each person, and then we built technology that would automate persuasive messages based on your unique characteristics. And this is actually exactly what Cambridge Analytica later was, right? It uses your big five personality traits. If you don't know the big five framework, it's your um, openness, it's the ocean. Uh, so it's openness, conscientiousness, uh, agreeableness, extroversion, I got those two reversed, and then neuroticism. And so uh, open, yeah, I won't go into the details, but basically based on your personality traits, you would deliver different political messages. And that's what happened in the 2016 uh, election. Um, you know, so this all relates to the conversation we just had about language and about, you know, Byron Katie and beliefs. It's because 
uh, once you understand the code and you can dip into the code, it it's also it's incredibly dangerous what you can do with that because if you think about what do you do when you wake up in the morning, it's the product of what's running the software that's running in, inside your between your ears. And uh, this is this is the kind of stuff that we studied in BJ's lab. So I have so many things to ask. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it's, it's a you know, topic. super, super helpful background. Uh, BJ is a good guy. I just want to, uh, just to reiterate something you said, which is this is not Dr. Evil's lair for, <laughs> you know, a malevolent 20 year old, uh, you know, code wizards. It, uh, and, and BJ actually in other classes focused on things like, uh, peace and world peace. And it was yeah. difficult to get people. This is a great example of language. It was very difficult for, to get people to agree on what that actually meant. Yeah. So he would focus on defining antecedents. What are some components, mm-hmm. antecedents that would be necessary to lead to what anyone in the class would consider world peace. And then he was able to get people to agree on some of the, the, uh, the smaller antecedents and that ended up being the focus of the class right so it's a very smart yeah. way to approach it he's, he's a good guy so i want to under, underscore that and do, do you just add on to what you're saying i mean do you know that the the full story of the peace thing was, was awesome he actually had for a while back in i think it was 2006 or 7 um multiple tech companies start a peace dot domain so it was like peace dot facebook.com peace dot linkedin.com peace dot couchsurfing.com yeah he petitioned a few of the tech companies and the idea was could they each do something that would be the way that they are contributing to world peace. Um, and so with Facebook, they had a running wall of uh, new friendships and connections formed between Israelis and Palestinians. Mm-hmm. It, was a, it was like a live feed of how many new relationships had formed in the last, you know, whatever day or something like that. And Couchsurfing, uh, the CTO of Couchsurfing actually was my collaborator on this time well spent uh, initiative, which later we'll talk maybe about uh, took over uh, Facebook and Apple and, and Google in terms of some recent changes that they've been making to their products. Um, you know, he he had started uh, Couchsurfing or worked on Couchsurfing, which was a website before Airbnb for finding free space to crash out when you're trying to stay with a friend. And they also were part of this peace dot um, initiative that BJ started. And they showed, I think, the number of people who had stayed on each other's couches that were also from different um, uh, ethnic backgrounds that that would have been otherwise at war or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so to BJ's credit, and so people really understand and get this, it was not a diabolical Dr. Evil lab for training, you know, psychological manipulation. It was, you know, explaining the techniques. And he also petitioned the FTC in the late 1990s about uh, at the ethics and the need for ethics and persuasive technology. But uh, I just want to make sure people got that before we go go deeper. Yeah. And, and on top of that, uh or just to add to that, uh, you know, t- technologies are tools, and tools of almost any type can be used, misused, abused. They can be uh, applied in many different ways. And uh, you know, one of the one of the questions I've been kind of dying to ask you is focused on incentives. I mean, we have so many different directions we could go with this conversation, but ultimately. Uh, when I've read a lot of, of what you've written, when I've listened to you speak, it becomes clear that, uh, at least to me, that um, much like the quote you, you sometimes use from sociobiologist E.O. Wilson, to quote, the real problem of humanity is the following. We have paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology, right? And so this 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 hypothetical situation that was a 
more of a thought experiment or a question from students in BJ's class than manifested in a political campaign <laughs> uh, can, can really um, paint a foreboding picture of the future, right? This very dystopian uh, picture. And what I'd, what I'd love to hear from you as we, as we look at some of the, the risks involved, uh, where, mm-hmm. where, t- where companies who are, uh, who are fueled and driven by advertising based models have cognitive neuroscientists, PhDs, I mean, armies of highly intelligent trained people developing highly intelligent, trainable technology to predict us better than we can predict ourselves. Yeah. Um, how do you incentivize companies, engineers, etc., to do the right thing? If and I mean, it's presumptive to say that I know what the right thing is, but let's just say <laughs> yeah. that that for Which the is sake clearly of, one right thing. Yeah, let's just say for the sake of argument that we agree uh, that. Uh, as you've noted, uh, or at least uh, no, the data reflects. Let me let me find it here because I have a note here that just is like horrifying um, when I look at it. Uh, here we go. So, a few examples, right? So, and uh, again, feel free to fact fact check any of this stuff. But you know, with over a billion hours on YouTube watch daily, seventy percent are from the recommendation system. The most recommended keywords in recommended videos were get schooled, shreds, debunks, dismantles, debates, rips, confronts, destroys, hates, demolishes, right? So we have this extremism reflected in yeah. uh, technology, which which we could talk, I mean, we could talk about whether that's a reflection of or informing um, the you know mass behavior, but the ones that really uh, paint a terrifying picture for me, I'll, I'll only give two examples, but 2018, if you were a teen girl starting on a dieting video, YouTube's algorithm recommended anorexia videos next because those were better at keeping attention. And then one more, this was from a New York Times article, uh, adults watching sexual content were recommended videos that increasingly featured young women, then girls, to then children playing in bathing suits. I mean, it's just like, oh, it's, yeah. it's really, it can paint a horrifying, terrifying picture. Uh, at the same time, I, I know people who work at all these big companies, uh, as you do. And yeah. on a one-on-one basis, these are good people. Uh, the, yeah. But the business models, sort of the incentives to shareholders and so on are such that these seem like very uh, almost kind of predictable side effects, like perverse side effects of the incentives that are in place. So, so how do you, how do you incentivize people to change this who are yeah. kind of at the, at this, at the driving, you know, in the driver's seat, uh, putting these things together? Yeah. Well, I'm so glad you laid all that out. Cause I mean, that is w- what you last said there, which is that we shouldn't even be surprised by these consequences. I mean, they're the direct consequences. You know, we always say it's like these harms are not by accident. They're by design. They're not by design by the people. Like you said, the good people who are there's no one at Facebook who's like, hey, how do we, or YouTube, who are like, how do we make this recommend as many pedophilia style rabbit hole videos as we can? Or let's recommend white nationalism, or let's recommend, you know, hate, you know, the most extreme sort of hate inducing speech. That is not what anyone at these companies wakes up and does. But we have to recognize this race to the bottom of the brainstem, race to the deepest paleolithic instincts towards tribal warfare, tied, you know, towards survival. We're under attack. The other side's going to come get us. We got to get those immigrants. This is our nature. And a race for attention is a race to get 
um, consequences. And you have to, you know, resonate at a deeper level than the other guys. And so the game theory progresses so that you have to go deeper into social validation. You have to go deeper into self-worth. You have to go deeper into tribal warfare language. Um, and so just, just to first lay out that, you know, these consequences are predictable and a direct consequence of that business model. When we say the business model, we should also be clear. It's not like the advertising business model causes this. It's not, it's not the rectangle that is the ad, the Nike shoes that are causing outrage and polarization. It's more the engagement business model. The fact that I am not, as YouTube or Facebook, a neutral tool waiting here like a hammer, waiting to be used at, you know, just when you want me. I actually have a necessity. I'm like a, a hammer sitting here with the stock price that depends on you using me in particular ways towards particular nails that cause other hammers to be activated so that other people keep using it. Um, and I have $500 billion at stake at keeping people using these hammers in particular ways. And that is the disincentive. That is the subversion of autonomy that is you know, directly coupled with the the success of the product, the success of the business model, and the subversion of the social fabric, unfortunately. And so so in terms of your question, for, the first thing I want to do is to make sure that we're all clear on that consequence being, you know, direct from you know, falling out of the business model. Because, you know, I've been working in this, for, this field for a long time, and it's taken a while for <laughs> the world to accept that that is the case. I mean, at the beginning, I had conversations with people at some of these big uh, attention engagement-seeking companies, you know, five six years ago, saying, "Hey, I think you know the business model here is addiction. The business model here is whatever works at getting attention." They're like, "Yeah, you might be right, but maybe culture will wake up and see that on their own." There was never a sense of responsibility in the part of some of those people, and I think that's part of what we've had to do is just make it utterly clear that this business model does cause predictable harms uh, at at scales that are really hard to fathom. But now comes the question of like, okay, so now we recognize that, what do we actually want to do about it? And, you know, I think anybody, you know, like you, you, you were here in Silicon Valley 20 years ago, and uh, I think it was, how long were you? You were, it was like 15 years ago you were here? I was, I was in Silicon Valley from 2000 onward, uh, up until about a year and a half ago. Okay, right. But I just mean the sort of, you know, the, yeah, the 2000 period to 2010-ish, you were, you were in the thick of it. I was. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, the point being that uh, all the people I know and the founders of Instagram and, you know, my friend Azar Raskin, who, you know, was early at Mozilla and started the Center for Humane Technology with me. I mean, we, we all got into the industry not because we wanted to, to create big, I don't know, um, I mean, maybe this is unusual, but we actually wanted just to help people. We wanted to build really empowering tools, technology that's more like a cello, you know, go back to the days of the Macintosh where it's, it's a bicycle for the mind. You know, the whole point of, of what, what a computer was and Steve Jobs' idea was, you know, if you take a human being and they've got their own locomotive capacity to expend some energy and then move a certain distance and they're not very efficient compared to the condor, but if you give them a bicycle, suddenly a human can like use a little bit of energy with their legs and the pedals and they're going further than a condor um, in terms of the locomotive efficiency. And so his metaphor was technology could be a bicycle for the mind. And I'm all for that. And that's what so many of us got into this industry to do. But then somewhere along the way, um, you know, the, the, set of incentives that were at play forced that the thing we would monetize is human behavior. And that's that's where the the first problem comes in, that 
success in the Macintosh was not directly tied to how many of your friends I could sign up to using and then getting them clicking on things and sending you notifications about when they click this desktop icon versus that desktop icon. Or, you know, there was no problem with Adobe Photoshop. There's no problem with Microsoft Word. Microsoft Word wasn't tilting the world towards conspiracy theories or algorithmic extremism and sending you notifications about when your friends didn't check the Word document that you did or didn't send them. I mean, it didn't have any of this stuff. So the thing, the, the fundamental place that we went wrong is when we attached financial success directly to the capturing of human behavior, the controlling and shaping of human behavior. Because that's where the persuasive technology stuff comes in, because those principles became applied to how do I keep you engaged? And so if you take an example like the follow button, you know, if you remember, you know, Twitter uh, and Instagram were two of the first services that did this, where instead of just adding someone as a friend, which is the Facebook model, a bi-directional connection model, uh, followers, uh, that follow button and model created a reason why you would always get new email. Like every day you get new email being like, you've got two new followers, you've got five new followers, you've got six new followers. And you'd always want to say, oh, I wonder who followed me today. And so that was this beautiful invention that got people coming back um, and ultimately to become addicted to getting attention from other people. And the same thing with the like button. So, you know, instead of persuading to get to capture your attention, it was much cheaper to get people hooked to seeing how much attention they got from other people. Because now you autonomously, like I don't have to do anything to you, I, you are now autonomously going back to see how many views did I get on that YouTube video? How many views did I get when I played that video game and I posted it on Twitch? How many views did I get, likes did I get when I put that post up? Um, and so I think that's, that's where we went wrong, is when we tied business success and billions of dollars to the amount that we captured attention. And we have to go through a mass decoupling between business success and capturing human beings. Um, and that's going to be an uncomfortable transition. It's a big transition, I think, that's of the scale of, you know, going from an extractive energy economy of fossil fuels to a regenerative energy economy. You know, the, the metaphor we make is, you know, there's, on, there's only so many environmental resources and drilling for oil. And that, that worked great at generating, um, you know, a whole energy economy that, you know, gave us all this prosperity. But now, unless we want to deal with you know, climate catastrophe, we got to switch to a regenerative energy economy that doesn't directly couple, you know, profit with um, extraction. And the same thing is here, except the finite substrate that we're extracting from is our own brains. Like we're scooping out the attention from ourselves because it takes nine months to put a new human being into the attention economy. And, uh, and, and we have to decouple this relationship that profit is directly coupled with the extraction and move it to a more regenerative model where we are not the, the cow or the or the product, but we're the customer. What um, what might motivate or force, say, a Facebook to change their model in the sense that if you look at Wall Street, which is as, as a metaphor for investment, and I'm not going to say in, it, all investors are immoral, that's not true at all, uh, but a lot of them are somewhat morally agnostic in the sense that if Facebook can better and better monetize the capturing of attention, this, uh, this sort of non-renewable resource of the mind. Yeah. Money will flow into Facebook. And then Facebook will be positively reinforced and rewarded for doing what we're describing, right? Uh, so, yeah. so how do you, how do you, is it possible to, to sort of divert the flow of that river. I mean, what what would is it going to take? High level policy change. What 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 levers could be pulled 
that would that would catalyze a change. Yeah. Well, I think just to name very concretely, what you're pointing out is that this, you know, <laughs> all the incentives point to continuing this sort of exactly. self-extraction, right? So we, why why would we stop scooping the attention out of ourselves, destroying democracy and debasing our mental health when that's the thing that makes the most money and Wall Street's not going to stop funding it? So to deepen that example you're giving, um, back last year in August when Facebook, uh, sorry, when Twitter shut down 73 million fake accounts. So these were, you know, um, what are called sock puppet accounts or fake accounts. It could have been Russian bots. They could have been whatever. Uh, they should have been rewarded for taking down these 73 million accounts. But of course, what happened when Wall Street saw this was that their stock price had previously been tied directly to how many users they have. So when they right. take down 73 million accounts, they're like, oh, well, your company is worth a lot less than before. But we actually had to do the opposite, which is that we need to reward the companies for basically having a high integrity um, public square. And there, there's so many different facets to this, Tim, but the, to answer your question, we're going to need policy that basically does, you know, helps this decoupling process happen. We're going to need shareholder activism that puts board resolutions on the companies to make this change. We're going to need uh, internal employees advocating for this change saying, you know, hey, I don't, I, I want to move to a more regenerative model that's like the equivalent of people um, last year advocating for time well spent, which ultimately became part of the the design goal for Mark Zuckerberg and, and Facebook um, in 2018. Um, so it, it's gonna, it's a transition. It's just like moving from fossil fuels. Like you know, Exxon does not have an incentive to not be Exxon, you know. And sometimes we wake up in these uncomfortable circumstances where you know our business model is based on a thing we didn't know was bad at the time, but we're starting to realize it was bad. And you know, an uncomfortable metaphor I've used for this in the past, it's like, let's say you run the NFL, National Football League, like great sport. We've been doing it for, you know, decades and decades and decades. And, uh, you know, lucky you, you're CEO of NFL. And one day, you know, your your sports scientist um, health guy comes up to you and says, hey, I think that when we smash people's heads together like this, it's causing concussions. And you wake up and realize that your business model is smashing people's heads together and selling it against advertising on TV. And it's kind of the essence of the sport. And no one wanted it to be this way. But that's where we landed. And now what do we do? And it's really hard. I mean, everyone's going to try to put in the padding and we're going to try to increase the safety standards and you, know, you do whatever you can. But at some point, the essence, the existential essence of what football is about is that you know, is this sort of process that does endanger people's people's heads. Uh, and I think that that's a situation that we're near now, which is that we can't ask for internal change from companies who whose entire, you know, incentives are, are otherwise. But with policy uh, that decouples success, we can talk more about that, but there's some ways to do it from the outside. I'd love to, yeah, I'd love to talk more about this. Uh, and, uh, this is this is relatively new territory for me. I mean, not as a user, but certainly at a policy level or a sort of re replacing business model perspective yeah. with some of these 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 gigantic companies. Uh, you have far more time in the trenches than I do. Is is uh, what what are any of the kind of Archimedes levers or proof points that could cause a shift, if any such thing could exist. For example, is there a company that is pursuing a different model, though they could use the extraction, the attention extraction model, who, if they succeed on a large scale, could beget 
a, a trail of similar companies or provoke a change in business model at some of these other companies? I mean, are there any uh, particular yeah. uh, you know, models to mimic or companies that are doing something that, is, that, ref, that reflects a viable alternative? Um, or, or is it really just blank canvas at this point? Yeah, I mean, we're in uncharted territory because we have this situation where there's a monopoly on attention between, you know, a handful of major technology companies, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, you know, Snapchat, Instagram, WhatsApp kind of own the attentional environment. And there aren't an alternative place to reach 10,000 people when you want to upload a video, right? You can't just get that same level of audience when you push it to Vimeo. And so these are kind of attention monopolies, which is why one of the issues and one of the fundamental things we got to deal with is competition. Um, we, one reason we're not getting different business models is you can't compete and get access to that same attention monopoly. Um, so we, we need this where, you know, Chris Hughes, the Facebook co-founder writing that op-ed in the New York times saying we have to break up Facebook is there needs to be more diverse ways of people competing to produce products that are of different business models that support, um, society's being that better protect the public square. But then the response from the tech companies is going to be, uh, I think Zuckerberg said that you know they spend more money on protection and trust and abuse and Russian misinformation protection and you know trust and safety and all that stuff than all of Twitter's revenue combined. So like take all of Twitter's <laughs> revenue in a year, and they spend more money on that than on, on trust and safety than than what Twitter spends in in a year on what they gain in a year on revenue. So that puts us in, in this uncomfortable position where it's going to cost us something. We can't just do it. You know, this is kind of like a non, um, I forget his last name, but the book, The Winner Take All, mm-hmm. you know, it's, we keep looking for these win-win solutions, but sometimes we have to lose a little bit so that everybody wins. And that's not a, a good message for, um, you know, capitalists, uh, because that's not how we like to roll. But, um, you know, sometimes it works that way with organic food, right? Like you realize that maybe regular food isn't so good and we want to get the clean food that's better. Uh, that's organic and doesn't have the same pollutants, even though there's some uh, marketing and narrative that's baked into that assumption. Uh, and we can sell it for a higher price. So the thing that's good for people, um, we can actually make money off of in a premium product. But in this world, these are the products that run the public square, that run the world belief system. So talking about beliefs the first, you know, however long we were talking, just consider that YouTube shapes more than a billion hours of watch time daily. And there's 2 billion people, which is uh, who use it every day, which is about uh, more than the size of Christianity in terms of a psychological footprint. Um, YouTube, uh, Facebook is 2.3 billion people. Um, YouTube is 2 billion people. If you add up Instagram and WhatsApp, it's another uh, billion or so. So you're talking about a couple Christianities of, of psychological influence total. Uh, this is an insane level of psychological influence. So we better be really thoughtful. This is why I think, you know, I, I, my from my background, I mean, where I look at these things from is let's get really nuanced and hold up a microscope to what these things are doing to the psychological timelines of people. You know, what happens in your nervous system, whether it's with the word climate change or the word death tax or the word, you know, um, send our sons and daughters to war. You know, between you know, 2 billion people going down a railway where if you pull the lever, they experience these set of consequences on YouTube. And if you don't pull the lever, they experience these set of consequences. That's like the trolley problem in philosophy. Uh, That's kind of what I was thinking about when I was at Google as a design ethicist, is how do you ethically shape 2 billion people's thoughts where you don't even really get to make that ethical decision because your business model and your incentives are making that decision for you. Um, And this is where we have to decouple it. And we can talk about some concrete solutions. I mean, 
Apple, by the way, is kind of the government of the attention economy. They're like the central bank. And they people don't look at them that way because they're just making this product called the iPhone. But they control the dials on basically what it means to get attention from people um, and, and where the, you know, the app store policies on business models and, you know, things like screen time that help you limit how much time you're spending. There are ways in which from top down you can change the incentives or do sort of quantitative easing on, you know, how people navigate through an incentive system that's fundamentally about manipulating their attention. But then there's some deeper changes that we can talk about too. Yeah, let's get into it. What are some what are some deeper changes? I like the sound of it. We'll we'll see. Well, so let's. I know. I, I realize I'm sort of giving you an opening here. I mean, the 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 window. Um, I'll, I'll swing at this at the soft pitch. I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, you know feel free to jump in. The, the the one simple example is what happened with energy companies and utilities in the United States. So it used to be, if you think about it, energy companies make more money the more energy you use. So technically. You know, if they're running out of profits and they want you to use more, they're incentivized to have you leave the lights on, leave the faucet on, leave the shower on, just waste as much energy as possible because that's how they rake in the money, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, and clearly that's not right. Like you don't want a world where we're basically, we profit from our own self-destruction, mm-hmm. except that's kind of what we're trying to avoid here in all the circumstances. So, uh what happened with energy is at least for, I think, at least half of U.S. states went through this decoupling regulation where energy companies profit the more energy you use linearly. So you use a little bit more energy, they make some more money. More energy, they make some more money. And then at some point, you hit a tier where they want to disincentivizing you. They want to disincentivize you from using more. So they say double charge you. So now you use the same amount of energy, but now they're charging you twice as much. So that disincentivizes you from using it except they don't hold on to all of the profits from that 2x cost. They instead reinvest that extra cost into a renewable fund, a fund that basically uh, invests in renewable energy infrastructure. So in other words, the disincentive to use more energy is used to fund the transition to renewable energy. Right. And now you can imagine something similar happening with technology where You can have an attention or advertising-based business model. I'm not saying this is the solution I believe in, by the way, but I think this is a a piece in the toolkit, is you can have a situation where you make money the more attention you get from someone, but up until a very small point. Because beyond that point, you're basically incentivized to create mindless consumption and zombification and teen mental health problems and loneliness and the whole thing, right? So you can imagine a world where we decouple attention success from business success. Um, decouple the capturing of human behavior and manipulation of human behavior from business success. And and then most importantly, to reinvest that money into, you know, the equivalent of what renewable attention, renewable human life, you know, things would look like. And um, that that could happen. That's something that you could uh, help regulate um, uh, with, with laws. Uh, Let you me know, ask Paul a, a Romer, quick, oh, I'm sorry, yeah, don't, don't lose, lose track. One last thing was up. Yeah, Paul Romer, go ahead. Paul Romer, yeah, he's a Nobel Prize winning economist, had proposed something recently called like an attention data tax that has some similar characteristics that you want to progressively price um, the attention companies because they have this this bad incentive. Where would you, if it were up to you, where would you apply those funds? Um, so, I mean, in the long run, I think that you can't have, you know, I said this on you know, and some other things, I mean, you know, I know you've had Mark Andreessen on the, uh, on the podcast and he has this, this line that's very famous from 2011 that software is eating the world. Right. Um, 
because fundamentally it's like, okay, if you could have taxis and our whole transportation infrastructure run without software or, and it's not done with any intelligence and there's no demand side, you know, supply matching, et cetera, first you do it with technology and you get all that efficiency. Of course, software is going to eat the world. It's going to eat up everything. It's going to eat up media. It's going to eat up advertising. It's going to eat up taxis and transportation. It's going to eat up every domain of life because it can always do it more efficiently. Mm-hmm. But if you think about it, what that means is take a morning, take an area like Saturday morning cartoons. So that used to be run not by software. It used to be run by some human beings and some laws and editors curating what happens for children. But then you let YouTube for YouTube just gobble up Saturday morning. And it also gobbles up with it all of the Saturday morning protections. And so as software eats the world, like, for example, Facebook, you know, we used to have equal price campaign ads on um, on TV as regulated. So it's Tuesday night, 7 p.m., it should cost the same amount for Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump to reach the same audience. Otherwise, it'd be unfair. It wouldn't be a democracy. But you suddenly let Facebook gobble up election advertising, and now the price has no assurances that it's going to be the same equal price. So what happens is as software starts eating the world, what happens is private incentives eat the world. We lose the public protections. Mm-hmm. So to answer your question about where it goes for renewable uh, funds, is we, we have to have some notion of things that are built to serve the public interest and not just private interests. Um, I know this is happening in some discussions around AI where past a certain amount of wealth creation because these AI things, once you really let them go, can generate so much wealth by continuing to produce innovations and efficiencies and revenue and all this stuff that, you know, after some certain point, shouldn't we just give that money back to the people? You know, give that money back to, instead of extracting from us, shouldn't it be ultimately for improving the greater lot for all of society? And I think that's something that we may feel uncomfortable with, but we have to do with these large technology companies because if they're running a constant for-profit shareholder maximizing extraction you know, racket and they've got to keep maximizing and they've got to keep extracting and they, there's never a point to the end of their growth, it's no wonder that they're over-extracting from democracy and mental health and kids and all this other stuff if they have to keep growing their footprint right. of attention. I suppose also, I mean, this is just me kind of talking out my ass for a second, but it's a go bad, for it. bad habit I have. So here we go. <laughs> uh, if Even if one can't settle on a plausible alternative, there could be a, a reasonable consensus on the undesirable side effects of the model, right? So you could, yeah. as a stopgap measure, say a portion of funds past this point, and it would be tricky to define whatever that point is, is applied to, say, some mechanism for trying to alleviate uh, uh, teen mental health issues, let's just say, or fill in the blank, right? To to try to offset the damage that is being done at the very least. Um, And and that could be at least a, a a possible discussion for a plausible stopgap until a viable supplemental model or alternative model is found towards which things get steered through uh, some type of, I suppose it would have to be policy or regulation or something along those lines. Yeah, well, what I hear you saying fundamentally is about, um, you know, this is a classic externalized, externalizing harm model, right? Like, you know, so oil is the most profitable, you know, form of creating energy and moving it around the world and, you know, portable and all these great things. But it, so it makes the most economic sense to go with oil. 
um, except if you account for the externalities, <laughs> if you account mm-hmm. for the balance sheet of society, the balance sheet of the commons, the balance sheet of nature, which get hurt by this seemingly most efficient, cheapest uh, form of energy. And the same thing is true of advertising. Like, it feels like, well, why in the world would we, you and I, Tim, pay for Facebook when it's free? I mean, why in the world are we doing it? Like, the problem is the harm shows up on the balance sheet of, you know, our sleep, of our of our collective democracy, of our public sphere, of the quality of our sense-making, the information ecology, mental health. It shows up everywhere. And so what, what I hear you saying is, hey, well, let's at least put a fund aside to pay for some of those externalities, almost like carbon offsets or mental health offsets or democracy offsets. But the challenge is that, you know, it's like, wouldn't it be better? It's like there's this joke about capitalism. It's like capitalism would prefer to give you diabetes and then get you subscribed to a profit-maximizing diabetes cure that I keep you, you know, on a subscription where I make money as I sell you the subscription uh, for the solution versus just not creating the diabetes at all in the first place. Right. Yeah. And I think the question is, how do we create systems that don't create the diabetes, the informational diabetes, the democracy diabetes, the mental health diabetes with technology in us? Um, how do we not do them in the first place? And by the way, it's totally possible. Like, you know, Instagram at the very beginning, I remember when those guys first started, and I was one of the early users because we we actually used uh, what was it called Bourbon it was the first yeah, um, predecessor to, to Instagram. And, you know, it used to be just about friends keeping up with each other's lives. And it had some of the addictive qualities and, you know, it had some of the infinite scroll and all that stuff. But it didn't have this focus on celebrities and girls who basically competed on who would wear the, you know, fewer clothing and then be most recommended in the Discover tab, you know, to get maximum audience. And then kids basically realizing they could make money and selling their Instagram page for the million followers to brands and then everyone wanting to compete and being a bigger influencer. Like all that culture of we're all addicted to being influencers and addicted to getting attention. That is an externality of culture, of cultural values that are not real, but that actually came from um, Instagram going down this over-extractive kind of growth-oriented path that you know that that they needed to not because you know they were evil people or anything like that, but because the the business model once they were acquired by Facebook, they had to keep growing. They had to get a bigger and bigger attentional footprint. And what you really want is you want it back to the early days. I mean, let's take it back to the the Instagram guys and just following 10 friends and seeing where they are around the world and keeping in touch with our friends. That's great. You know, and there's people who use Instagram that way now, and that's also awesome. But we also have to account for the fact that the interface is not tuned towards keeping it just for that use case. Like Instagram could be, if it was truly humane, just trying to, you know, help us pick those 10 friends that we really want to keep in touch with, as opposed to let's maximize discovery and influencers and, you know, millions of followers and get lots of people looking at stuff. That's that's an incentive of a for-profit public company that now has to run that incentive. And you know the same thing was true with Facebook, by the way. If you go back to early interviews with Zuckerberg in 2005 at Stanford, he gives a speech at Stanford with uh, Jim Breyer, the uh, Entrepreneurial Thought Leaders Seminar, and he said, you know, well, what is Facebook? And he said, it's it's a, like an address book. It's like a public. It's like a utility for your social life. It's a social utility, is what he called it. And that was closer to a model where it's more of a tool back to what you were saying about technology being just a tool. Like, I'm I'm all for that. I mean, technology being an empowerment tool. And I think there's beautiful things that can come from these things when they are operating as tools. But the business model of advertising and engagement is is the anti-tool. It, it, it does not want to be a tool. It wants something from you. And that's what we have to, to, you know, draw that line there and decouple business success from not being a tool. It might sound aggressive. I mean, this is the thing no, that's hard for people no, to I hear. I get it. It's, 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 it's tough. Know. I mean, this is, we're talking about 
highly um, you know, systems with extreme financial rewards associated with the problems that are manifesting and compounding, right? And yeah, it's, exactly. it's a very thorny problem. So let's. It's, it, it's yeah. just like climate change, though, right? Because it's like, you know, we're all addicted to the growth, but like growth towards what? Growth towards our own self-terminating, you know, catastrophe. <laughs> it's like, yeah. well, we can't, we can't get off of oil because that's the only way we're going to get the thing. And it's, it's like, yeah, but the alternative is that we have self-terminating endpoint. So it, we have to recognize that, you know, it's like Paul Hawken, if you know him and his work on drawdown, it's a, it's like a, the top 100 ways to to address climate change. And he says, oh, but people tell him like, oh, but solving climate change is so expensive. It's going to cost us so much money. It's like, no, it's actually the opposite way around. If we don't do it, it's going to cost us way more. <laughs> um, we, we have to make the transition towards something renewable because it's actually going to be completely self-terminating if we don't. Because I, the, you know, the the information ecology, the 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 thing that fuels how we make sense of the world in our democracy, like democracy only outcompetes the Chinese authoritarian model if we have really good bottom-up information sources, like diverse, rich ideas marketplace type things. And this business model of engagement, the race to the bottom of the brainstem towards the salacious, the outrageous, the hateful speech, the extremism stuff, the pedophilia, is not fueling our democracy with the best sources. It's like we have the talk about, you know, personal life optimization and keto diets and, you know, nutrients. Like we're <laughs> We're feeding ourselves the opposite of a democracy democracy keto diet, right? And we we have to flip this around. And it's not a matter of this being my opinion or something like that, or this being, you know, just being a motivated activist. This is like I'm actually concerned about this because if we don't, the alternative is a, a thousand or billion times worse. Yeah, for sure. I uh, it reminds me of a quote by and I I never know how to pronounce this guy's name, but Chuck Palahniuk. I think I'm getting it right. Mm. Uh, and the it's the partial quote is Big Brother isn't watching. He's singing and dancing. He's pulling rabbits out of a hat. Big Brother's <laughs> busy holding your attention every moment you're awake. He's making sure you're always distracted. He's making sure you're fully absorbed. And it just goes on to say yeah. that by doing so, you're no threat. And I, I don't want to turn this into some. Uh, you know, viva la resistance type of. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I'll tell you. I mean, this represents the um, Neil. Have you ever read "Amusing Ourselves to Death" by Neil Postman? I have not, but I've I have heard of it. It's uh, there's this quote. I'm going to pull it up because I that's just worth reading really quick. Um, we were all keeping an eye out for 1984, um, and uh, you know, we we thought about the dystopia that we would get was the Big Brother one. But alongside Orwell's dark vision, there was this other slightly older and less well-known but equally chilling vision of Huxley's Brave New World. It's Aldous Huxley. And, um, you know, he summarizes it this way. It says beautifully. It says, what Orwell feared were those who would ban books. What Huxley, what Huxley feared is that there would be no reason to ban a book because there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared uh, those who would deprive us of information, Huxley feared those who would give us so much that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared we would become a trivial culture, preoccupied with some equivalent of the feelies, the orgy-porgy, and the centrifugal bumble puppy. This is the 1930s. As Huxley remarked in Brave New World, the civil libertarians who were ever on the alert to oppose tyranny, they failed to take into account man's almost infinite appetite for distractions. Um, he ends by saying Orwell feared those 
that what we fear will ruin us. Huxley feared that what we desire will ruin us. And that's, that's essentially the premise of the work. It's like there's two ways to kind of fail here. As in most systems, there's almost always two ways to fail. One way to fail is the authoritarian big brother censorship sort of mode with with so little information that we don't have any and we're all restricted and top-down controlled, et cetera. But then the bottom-up way to fail is just overwhelmed in irrelevance, in distraction, in overstimulating our magic trick sort of brain with paleolithic uh, social validation and tribal warfare and moral outrage and all that stuff that isn't actually adding up to anything. And human agency, which is unique to the world, like choice, is that thing that's sitting in between those two worlds. You know, informed, effective choice, good choice. And that's what we right now, like as a human civilization, like that's where we got to be because those other two models are really bad and, uh, and self-terminating in some cases. If we cannot, I mean, my biggest fear about these issues is we have to be able to agree on a common reality, a common truth, because that's the only way if we don't agree on what's real, or if we don't believe there is truth, then we can't construct shared agendas to solve problems like inequality or climate change or whatever. Like we have real problems and we have to find ways that we actually can see those agreements and then construct actions together to, to change it. And I think that right now technology is kind of taking us away from that. But the reason that we work on these topics is I want to live in a world where technology is giving us the superpowers to do that. Like superpowers for common ground, superpowers for constructing shared agendas, superpowers for Instead of getting learned helplessness by seeing climate change news, you know, pounded into our nervous systems, dosed to, you know, to two billion people a day, uh, to instead have, you know, mass empowerment, like mass coordinated action that we can all take um, and feel optimistic about all the all the progress we're making and all the all the things we can do next. So that's that's kind of the project here is like we we are trapped in this one paleolithic meat suit that's got these, you know, these kinds of bends and, and contortions that that bend reality in a way that can be hacked. And we can also use those bends and contortions in a way that gives us the most empowerment. And if we ever needed those superpowers, it's, it's right now. This is a perfect segue. I have, I have a question for you that is personalized. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start by finishing okay. the quote that I ended up only reading partially. So Big Brother, this is from Chuck Palahniuk. Big Brother isn't watching. This is very close to what you were just saying with Huxley. He's singing and dancing. He's pulling rabbits out of a hat. Big Brother's busy holding your attention every moment you're awake. He's making sure you're always distracted. He's making sure you're fully absorbed. He's making sure your imagination withers until it's as useful as your appendix. And that would be a problem, uh, both on an individual level and certainly on a collective level. And there's a, there's a quote of yours that was in the, uh, I guess, a TEDx Brussels, if I'm getting the location right, mm. uh, presentation. I spend a lot of my time thinking about how to spend my time. And I'd, I'd love for you to talk about what you do on a personal level to whether it's a firewall your attention or to mm-hmm. sort of mitigate some of the damage slash distraction that every economic force <laughs> seems to want to Im- impose on you. And uh, yeah. so there's, there's, you know, on one hand there's defeating Skynet and, and then yeah. there's like the day to day life of John Connor. Right. So <laughs> if you're John right. Connor, like what, what, what are some of the things that you do on a day to day or week to week basis to defend against some of these, uh, you know, some of these forces, some of these, yeah. Yeah, some of these technologies. 
It's funny when you mentioned this sort of John Connor and both living a personal life and defeating Skynet. I just realized in you saying that, that that's basically both, both my life is both of those things right now. Like every <laughs> single day of my life is how do we defeat Skynet? Um, whether it's on Capitol Hill and just coming back from that last week or, um, you know, the personal level of, of just being, being, uh, being effective. So I'm well rested so I can do that. Um, you know, it's really hard. I mean, part of why I've worked on these topics for so long. I mean, that first TED Talk in 2014 was about time well spent and about the power of persuasive technology to make us distracted, which is kind of how this all started, was I, I found myself so easily distracted. Like, I hated seeing this happen over and over again. Like, you know, you get one of these emails saying you've been tagged in a photo or someone commented and mentioned you in a comment. Like, this is appealing to really deep instincts. Like, you're the protagonist of the show called Your Life. And when someone tags you in a photo, it's like, oh, something about me? Social approvals online. What did they say? Is it good? Is it bad? I have to see right now. And it's really powerful stuff. And the reason that I work on this is because I actually feel more sensitive than other people. Or I feel certainly very sensitive to these forces. So it's why I think it's so important to, pr to protect them and uh, or protect against them. And I think of it like we have to build these like exoskeletons for our Paleolithic brains. I mean, the military kind of takes this stuff seriously, right? With, you know, in military uh, combat and uh, the kind of flight instrumentation you see in a aircraft, uh, military aircraft or something like that, it's all about managing attention, like with crazy levels of discipline and science and research about how do you build that exoskeleton that gives us that level of focus and and thinking about through the right questions and not the wrong questions and being well rested and you know being able to stay up for many hours and focused on one single task and um, all that. So now to concretely answer your question, what are the things that we do? Um, it, you know, I <laughs> first of all, like I said, I struggle. Uh, it's hard, especially now because defeating Skynet comes with a lot of uh, email and communications and it's like being part of and uh, running a social movement for how to fix these things. I mean, we have a nonprofit for those who don't know called the Center for Humane Technology where we focus on this and we get emailed by every major world government and, you know, people who are dying to fix these problems and we're trying to be of assistance in catalyzing that change. So it, it comes with a ton of work and, and social obligation to get back to people. Um, and, uh, but some things that I've found have been helpful. I mean, one thing I've been doing since I was uh, in college is, uh, since we're mentioning these tips like the grayscale tip, um, which just to make sure your audience knows what that is, so that the idea there is when, when your phone has colorful rewards, it it's invisibly addictive. It's like showing the chimpanzee part of your brain a banana every single time you you uh, you look at the color of the, the icons and all that stuff. And so one thing that you can do is you can go into, and I think that you're probably going to list this in the comments, but it's something like, I think it's general, and then uh, you go to the settings app on your iPhone, and then uh, general, and then if you scroll to accessibility and scroll to the bottom, there's this thing that lets you triple click to set your phone grayscale. And yep. so you say, why would I, so why would I set my phone grayscale? Well, it just strips out those color rewards. So now when you look at your phone, it doesn't have that just just a little bit less luster and psychological animation of your nervous system. Um, and we help popularize that. And it's mostly also for the social effect. Because when you do that, people say, oh, your phone's grayscale. Why is that happening? And it lets you tell the story about why you would do this and the attention economy. And if you heard about time well spent, that's kind of why we did that. Quick, quick, quick addendum on that. Uh, so the triple click can turn it grayscale and back to color. Uh, and I'll put yeah. that, I'll put that in the show notes so people can find that at uh, tim.blog forward slash podcast. The, uh, the, another benefit of that, 
uh, which is which is one way to sell it uh, is uh, or an additional way to sell it is that it increases battery life also yeah uh, quite substantially increases battery life uh, and it makes it harder to find your icons <laughs> which <laughs> yeah. some might view as a bug but it's a feature if you're trying to use social media less yeah well so that speaks to a secondary uh, thing that you know I've recommended for for a while which is if you think of it your phone is um, you know, there's like a, a filter, uh, or rather it's, it's unfiltered. So it accepts both unconscious mindless uses of it and conscious mindful uses of it. And it can't tell the difference between when you're a zombie and you're out of anxiety, reaching for it to just check again, the thing you already checked 10 seconds ago. Uh, and when you're actually saying, no, 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 I really need to find directions to that party. I'm going to, I need to find those directions right now, right? It can't tell. So you don't want to put up these arbitrary speed bumps or roadblocks between you and what you want, uh, generically, because then you can't distinguish between those two uses. So, um, another thing you can do is if you basically take off all of your, your apps from your home screen, um, almost all of them, except for the, we recommend, we call them the tools. So like tools are your quick in and out utilities, uh, things like calendar, things like Lyft or Uber, uh, things like um, you know messages that just let you quickly do something and then you're done. Um, so those are fine to have on your home screen. But if you move everything else off the home screen and instead train yourself to pull down from the top on an iPhone and type like I want to launch mail or I want to launch Instagram or I want to launch Twitter. Because if you type, you have to be making more of a conscious choice. Like oh, I like that. It's, That's great. So think of it as like you're you're putting like a a band pass filter between you and your phone that's only accepting conscious uses and rejecting mindless uses. So that's like another thing you can do. Um, another thing that I do, if you want to be really militant about it, is if you think about one of the problems with the way that phones vibrate, it's gotten so bad that we now experience this thing called phantom vibrations, where <laughs> we we believe that our phone is vibrated even when it hasn't, and we're we're simulated so often that we're we're just constantly you know reaching into our pocket just to feel if it actually did vibrate and we check it again just in case. And it's just a mess. And um, one of the things that would help alleviate this is if you have a custom vibration signature for different kinds of notifications. So for example, when I get a message through iMessage uh, from from a contact, I actually, it buzzes three times in quick succession, like biz, 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 like really fast. And I can tell therefore when I'm getting a message from someone uh, versus when I'm getting like a calendar notification, like you're 10 minutes late for Tim's interview. <laughs> and that is a, is a helpful thing. Cause if you think about it, your phone is like a slot machine. It's buzzing in the same ambiguous way every time, which forces you to say, Oh, I wonder if that could be that thing I was looking for. And then that's the excuse to get sucked in. And then you get sucked into the rest of the thing. So in general, you want to minimize your, your use of, of, you know, ne- you're, you're needing to even check the thing in the first place. And that's what that helps do. And so you can do that by going to your notifications. And unfortunately, Apple doesn't let you split up all of your um, your your major categories of notifications. I mean, this is why when we push on technology companies, and this is one way Apple could be like a better government, a better central bank, is if they enabled in the next version of the phone a thing that showed you basically here are the top three kinds of notifications that you're getting. Like here's like a continent map um, of the major five categories of notifications. Do you want to set up a unique buzz signature for each of these five to distinguish them? Yeah, or right? disable them. Or disable them. Right, exactly. So I mean but both. And it and the whole point is we should have a, a whole 
this is like the environmental movement, right? It's like, imagine there's this, and this is the thing we're trying to catalyze, is that if everybody treated human attention as something sacred, that we're trying to minimize our footprint on it, as opposed to maximize how much we manipulate, take, extract, scoop out of your nervous system, um, that's the fundamental change. And if we treat it, if everything was treating your attention as something sacred, that like we want to move and change the minimal number of pixels on your screen. We want the minimal number of vibrations to ever occur. We want the minimal number of psychological anxiety concerns. I mean, this is another category people don't talk about is even when you're not looking at the phone, the um, anxiety loops of concerns that are looping in your mind as a result of the 10 minutes ago when you were using your phone. Like, oh, did that person get back to me? Oh, I wonder if I got new likes on that thing. Oh, I wonder if I'm going to get the address for that event, you know, if they sent that yet. Um, there's ways in which the phones could silence those concerns by, for example, letting us set up a, um, like, let's say when you go on Do Not Disturb for two hours, it said, is there any, it gave you the option to say, is there anyone who, if you heard from them in the next two to three hours, you would want it to um, make a special noise for? Uh, and you could mark that out. And that way you could now, you can now not use the phone and have complete like uh, separation from it because you have the certainty that you won't miss something important mm -hmm. because that fear that we could miss something important is uh, really powerful so that even when you go on do not disturb or airplane mode, people still go back to their phones and they check. So I think people just don't really realize the extent to which their deeper level nervous system and habits for reaching for this thing have been hijacked. And this is about kind of unhijacking your whole nervous system, not just you know the way that the phone works, but kind of alleviating and um, you know releasing your whole nervous system from its deep connection to these expectations. Yeah, totally. And uh, it's 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 the effect on the nervous system, right? Like the actual biological cost yeah. is is something that is hard to fully take stock of until it's removed. And it's huge. And I at least once every six months try to go uh, a few weeks without uh, any use of, of social media. And, and I find it I find it useful. I find it fun. I enjoy connecting with people through Twitter and polling. And there, there are some fantastic uses of, of social media. And I enjoy looking at it, pretty pictures on Instagram of cabins that I'm sure I will never visit and things like this. But the there there is a a a like neurobiological cost and yeah. one way one thing that i do that that people might also consider is if if you feel like you absolutely can't survive without social media or maybe that type of sentiment is disguised as i need this for my career in a b and c ways or i need this for my company in a b or c ways uh, there are many instances where I will schedule using something like Buffer or Edgar or one of these other tools for several weeks. So I'll batch my taking of photographs, those or whatever right. it might be, have those scheduled out for a few weeks. And I give myself then a vacation from any type of active monitoring or responding to social media. And the feeling at the tail end of that, let's call it week or two weeks, most pronounced after a week is not that this is going to sound really maybe ridiculous, but it, it is not that dissimilar uh, from a seven day silent Vipassana retreat. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> it is such a deloading phase yeah. uh, that it's, it, it's, it's, it sounds unbelievable until you actually try it. Uh, totally. I mean, it, I think what you're speaking to in general is something that we would call a humane technology design pattern, which is you, you know, the, the, there are going to be moments when we think of a thing we need to do, 
And the inability to do it at that moment um, uh, leads us to have to open up Twitter and, and write that thing or send that email to ourselves or whatever. And it, it you know, it, it, if we can't do it at that moment, we have to um, leave it on our nervous system as a looping concern. So now for the rest of your day, until you get to a computer or whatever, or until you do, it's like looping and you like, don't forget this thing, don't forget this thing. And there's a way in which if technology were truly respecting, um, you know, the fact that we're better off offloading these things into somewhere else where it's not taxing our nervous system, um, it could be a universal design pattern that you could um, enter something you want to do and schedule when you want it to happen and not do it immediately. Whether it's sending an email to someone or sending a, you know, uh, a text message when you're, um, like I think the way the iMessage thing works on an iPhone, you send a message to someone while you're on airplane mode, but it won't just say, oh, I'll send this when you get back. I just won't send it. And it forces it to be on you to That's go back and, such a pain and send it again. Yeah. And imagine if it said, like, hey, when do you want this thing to send? It's like baked into the way iMessage works, right? Yeah. Um, or baked like, into Slack. Like Gmail offline, right? It, would, it yeah. would automatically send when you were connected as opposed to forcing you to go in, click on this exclamation mark and <laughs> confirm exactly. that you want to resend it. It's like, yeah, I do want to resend it because... <laughs> Clearly, it didn't get delivered the first time. This should be pretty easy to logically deduce. And and you have to have the certainty that it's going to work. Because if you don't have the certainty, even if it does work like 90% of the time, like you're, it's going to generate that extra layer of like an anxious timeline. Like Just imagine this anxious timeline plopped down into your nervous system so that for the next two hours, there's this extra 3% that your nervous system is just taxed by the fact that you're not sure for sure if this thing's sent. Like You know Gmail's supposed to send it because it was an offline mode and they promised that they will, but if you don't have that that certainty, um, you know that we have to have that kind of confidence. And I think this is actually one of the simplest things that technology could do is there's a lot of uncertainty about... Um, stuff just doesn't work consistently, you know. Like <laughs> a lot of this, a lot of the the stress and the background radiation of of um, anxiety would go down if we just had more consistency in the way that we believed that these things would would work, as opposed to, um, yeah, the ways that they they are periodically broken. I mean, another one I wanted to mention that I do in terms of um, creating a fortress or firewall of attention. I actually haven't talked about this one, but if you turn on um, uh, in accessibility settings on a Mac. Um, the zoom feature, I don't know if you ever use this, but you can like zoom in to a certain part of the, the screen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do it where you hold down the control key and then you just use two fingers to sort of zoom in and zoom out. But what I do is when I'm trying to write, for example, um, I easily get distracted by any other pixels that happen to pop into the screen. Like it really affects me. I'm hypersensitive. And so when I'm doing any writing, I'll just zoom into that text field so it actually occupies the full 15 inches of my MacBook Pro uh, screen. And it helps me really focus. And using things like that, if you, if you just imagine that I'm trying, you're literally trying to conserve the number of pixels that change in an unexpected way because that will hijack and make it easier to forget or otherwise detour you from something that you're doing. And all of us, again, is like currently on us to do, right? This is like this extra cost that we all have to pay to know these tricks and listen to these podcasts and, you know, fiddle with these settings a hundred times. But the whole premise of this kind of work is imagine a humane and regenerative world where this is how it works by default, where everything is trying to minimize its footprint on our attention. And all the defaults are set 
to make it as seamless as possible and to do it the way that you would want it to work and to not have to double think and think, oh, maybe it didn't send, I got to send that again. Just that certainty that I can actually have peace of mind. I can actually do not disturb for a day because I know that, you know, out of office messages or I'm not going to respond for two days to email was built into the native functioning of how email worked on every email app or messaging app, right? We don't, we don't get that chance to, they don't, and WhatsApp doesn't have a mode that says, Hey, I want to go on vacation for a week. And this is the message I want to send to the people that are in this class of contacts. Like that could be baked into the way that messaging works, the ability to disconnect without missing something important. And that's the premise of what has to happen is a deeper redesign that treats human attention as sacred and that treats our cognition as something that we need to conserve for the areas we most need it in the big decisions we have to make in our lives. Um, that's what I'd love to see. Yeah, me too. And I suppose a, a, a part of that is uh, people developing the awareness of the value of their attention so that they are perhaps willing to pay for things that preserve and that attention and treat it as sacred by design. Right. Exactly. Attention is a scarce resource. I mean, it is a certainly a, a limited resource. Um, I know we only have perhaps a handful of minutes left. And I'd love to ask you as someone who I would I would imagine has read quite a few books in your day. And, and you mentioned a f- you've, you've mentioned a few, you mentioned metaphors we live by, you mentioned amusing ourselves to death. Are there any particular books that you have gifted often to other people or tend to recommend most often or have recommended a lot to other people? Do any, mm. do, do any come to mind? It's a great question. Um, you know, Neil Postman in general is a media thinker um, about some of the topics we've discussed today is just excellent. I mean, he foresaw so many of the problems in his books, Amusing Ourselves to Death. And another, another one by him is called Technopoly. Um, which also is about how when culture surrenders to technology and especially the quantification of metrics and SAT scores and time spent and GDP and these kinds of things he, he covers in that book, um, highly recommend. Um, there's another book called um, Finite and Infinite Games. Do you know this one? Yes, I do. By Kars. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, James Kars, the religious studies professor. Did you interview him in your podcast? No, no I haven't. Uh, I, I, I would certainly be open to it. <laughs> it's, a, it's a fascinating, fascinating book. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. that's just a, a general philosophy one about life and how to, I don't know, navigate in a more improvisational way and ask like, what what game am I really playing in any interaction? Am I playing for a finite game outcome to win the game, or am I playing to keep playing, which has a lot of overlaps with improvisation and uh, and things like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a fantastic book. People can get a very good taste of it by going to Goodreads and looking at uh, highlighted portions for finite and infinite and infinite games uh, also highly recommended by Stuart brand and a lot of other a lot of other really really uh, folks i respect a whole lot uh before yeah, we it, oh, i'm sorry i was gonna say recommend one more if you're into um, podcasts uh but someone who i've learned a lot from in terms of the civilization level dynamics around you know finite games operating on a uh, or infinite growth games operating on a finite playing field and the kind of the fundamental problems of capitalism. I recommend uh, looking at Daniel Schmachtenberger. Um, there's a Future Thinkers podcast episodes with him and his thinking has been hugely informative to my own. So recommend that for listeners. Wonderful. And I will figure out how to spell that and that will go into the <laughs> show notes as well. Uh, this has been so much fun. Uh, Tristan, I really appreciate you taking the time. These are important topics. These are 
these are timely, but uh, only going to become more relevant and more important. Uh, is there anything else you would like to say? Uh, anything else you would like to point people to? Suggestions you'd like to make? Anything at all that you'd like to share as uh, closing comments uh, before we wrap up? Um, well, no, first, just thank you for, for having me. I've enjoyed it as, as well. It's nice to finally connect. I think we've had many friends who've been trying to connect us for a while. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I think if you're interested in how we reform the attention economy and how technology has been working, I just recommend people check out our work at the Center for Humane Technology. Um, you can find me on Twitter at, at Tristan Harris or, um, the Center for Humane Technology website, humanetech.com. Um, but, uh, you know, this is going to take a village to make these changes. And I think it might seem really hard, but then what I would encourage people to do is recognize that, you know, our paleolithic brains are not meant, like if you ask, like, is our paleolithic instincts, are, are they designed to do well to look at a massive problem like climate change and just be like, great, let's get to work. Or are they more designed to look at a huge problem like that and say, oh my God, I have no idea what to do. Let me put my head in the sand. And it's definitely the latter. And I think that the thing that we have to recognize is that when you see big problems, recognize the the way that our instincts would bias us to put our head in the sands and ask instead, well, what if there's no one else who's going to solve these problems but us? Mm -hmm. um, because my last big lesson that I'll, I'll share with people, because I've had a crazy couple of years, I've been in the rooms with heads of state and um, you know the, the highest rooms possible considering these problems. There, there are no higher rooms. And I, I used to think in my life that there was this magic room of adults somewhere that you know, would, were actually thinking about all these problems and they had it all figured out. And don't you worry, Tim, you know, pat you on the head. They, <laughs> they've, they've, you know, we've got this one, son. You know, we, we really have this one figured out. And I've, my lesson this year is no such room exists around some of these big problems. Like mm. with climate change, there, there isn't some master plan that everyone's working on. And with this one, there isn't some, you know, just group of people at Facebook are like, that's nice, Tristan, but yeah, we're going to fix this whole thing. Like, it really is this emerging issue that I think people need to get used to, each of us who can, especially, who have the bandwidth, to take responsibility for the world that we live in and ask, what can we do? Because it was frightening and terrifying to realize at first that um, there wasn't a bunch of other adults, you know, or at least not that many adults in these rooms who knew the answers to these questions and that suddenly I was one of them. And then the second part is realizing, wow, okay, here we go. What what can we now do to navigate? What levers can we pull? And I think if everybody saw that they really were an active agent in the system and not just a, a passive um, participant, they would uh, we'd get there a lot faster. So I really encourage people to do that. We are all John Connor. We are all John Connor. That's a great. That's a great uh, episode title. Uh, well, these it's a very important message, and uh, look forward to uh, hopefully spending some time uh, together in person. Perhaps we can rope in Eric and some others. Yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. I miss Eric. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, really appreciate you taking the time again. This is this has been a lot of fun for me and very. Uh, very uh, enlightening, very insightful. And I have a whole sheet of notes that I've taken uh, on things that I want to follow up on. I will link for everyone listening to uh, all of the, the social links, 
the uh, humanetech.com and so on in the show notes. Also, all the books we've mentioned, everything else will be linked at tim.blog forward slash podcast. If you just search for uh, Tristan or Harris, although then Sam will pop up a couple times as well. So you'll have to parse that. Uh, and uh, until next time. Yeah. Thank you so much, Tristan. Thank you so much for having me, Tim. And uh, to everybody out there, thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday. Do you want to get a short email from me? And would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend? And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up in the uh, the world of the esoteric as I do. It could include favorite articles that I've read and that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out. Just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com, all spelled out, and just drop in your email, and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it. This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs. Hiring can be hard, really hard, and it can also be super, super expensive and painful if you get it wrong. I certainly have had that experience firsthand multiple times, and I'm not eager to repeat it. So I try to do as much vetting as possible on the front end. And today, with more qualified candidates than ever, you need a solution. You need a platform that helps you to find the right people for your business. LinkedIn Jobs does exactly that. More than 600 million users visit LinkedIn to learn, make connections, grow as professionals, and more than ever, discover new job opportunities. In fact, overall, LinkedIn members add 15 new skills to their profiles and apply to 35 job posts every two seconds. That's a crazy stat. LinkedIn does the legwork to match you to your most qualified candidates so that you can focus on the hiring process, getting the person into your company who will transform your business. They make sure your job post gets in front of the people with the right hard skills and soft skills to meet your requirements. They've made it as easy as possible. So check it out. To get $50 off of your first job post, go to linkedin.com slash Tim. Again, that's linkedin.com slash Tim to get $50 off of your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. Check it out. LinkedIn.com slash Tim. This episode is brought to you by Me Undies. Me Undies makes the softest undies known to man. That's what the copy says. And they are soft. They're really soft. Whether you like crazy prints or opt for classic black, Me Undies gives you the freedom to express yourself comfortably. I wonder what expressing yourself, of course, within legal bounds means in this case, but I do like to express myself. I'm wearing some tie-dye MeUndies right now as I record this. In the room next to me, I've got some pizza and video game prints. Those are not on the same pair of underwear, but two separate ones. And I'll be packing for a trip, and I have a nice stack of MeUndies going with me. Why? Because they're comfortable. Very, very comfortable. MeUndies has plenty of options for those looking to up their undie game. You can join the monthly membership. You can do build a pack, that is building a three, six, or 10 pack of your favorite undies or socks and saving up to 30%. 
You can select a matching pair to match with your better half or just pick out one pair that strikes your fancy. And there's some pretty ridiculous ones that I specialize in personally. MeUndies are made with soft, sustainable fabric and available in sizes from extra small to 4XL. Fun new prints drop every Tuesday and members get access to exclusive prints every month. MeUndies has a great offer for listeners of this podcast. For any first-time purchase, you get 15% off and free shipping. They also give you a 100% satisfaction guarantee. And I like to be satisfied with my underwear. To get your 15% off your first order, free shipping, and a 100% satisfaction guarantee, go to MeUndies.com slash Tim. That's MeUndies.com slash Tim.